The Lord calls us to worship this morning from the book of Psalms, chapter 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have gathered us together as your people, the church today, and that you invite us into your presence because of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we cry out to you as your people that you would, as our choir just sang, teach us, Lord. Speak to us by your word, according to your spirit, that we would also hear your word proclaimed and believe it. If our ears are sleepy and our minds are not sharp this morning, we pray that you would help us. If our hearts are elsewhere, if our eyes are on other things, we pray that you would draw us to yourself by your Spirit, that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ as beautiful this morning, and that we might believe the gospel by faith. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for your glory alone. And we pray that as we worship you, reading your word, praying to you, even as we do now, and singing hymns of beauty and praise to you, we pray, Lord, that you would accept our worship because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would train our hearts now, even as we pray the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, saying out loud, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. 
This morning for our confession of faith, we're going to recite together the Apostles' Creed. If you would like to turn there, it's in our green hymnal on page 845. Because this is a confession of our faith, I'm going to ask you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. For all who call upon the Lord by faith and look to the Lord Jesus Christ alone for cleansing from their sins, hear the assurance of God's pardon from the book of Psalms, chapter 138, beginning in verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord now by singing together hymn number 263, Lift High the Cross.
Children can come forward at this time for the children's sermon. Well, good morning, boys and girls. Scooch in, scooch in. There's plenty of room. Even, even room on the pew if you'd like to sit there. Well, I wanted to ask if anybody remembers what we have been talking about in our current children's sermon series. Simon. Honor. Honor. Yes, we have. And last week we started a topic that I thought would be good as a two-part topic. Um, we're talking about honoring God by the way that we repent of our sins. And does anybody remember uh, what we talked about last week? That repenting of our sins means doing what? Something towards God. Something that some of you might like to do on a beautiful day. Being sorry. Being sorry for our sins. What do you like to do on a, on a sunny day? Any of you outside? Pray. Pray. Repenting is praying. What about running? Does anybody like to run? We said last week that repentance is running away from sin, turning away from it, and running to God. Today I wanted to talk with you about a few more verses in Psalm 51. We started with Psalm 51 last week, and I wanted to talk to you about the way that you repent. Because how you pray to God, asking for forgiveness of your sins, is not just saying, I did this thing, and I did sin against you. We are admitting that. But we're also admitting something else when we come to the Lord and repent of our sins. And David says this throughout the psalm. He admits that what God wants in his people is truth, that he wants them to have clean hearts. And so he cries out to God. He says, would you please cleanse me, that what is inside of me would be pleasing to you? He says, clean me, give me a new heart. And he even says some words that might seem a little scary to you. Have any of you ever thought, maybe I won't tell someone what I'm thinking? It takes a little bit of self-control, I, I understand. Maybe I won't tell them what I'm thinking because if they knew what I was thinking, maybe they wouldn't like me. Or maybe they wouldn't want to be my friend anymore. And in Psalm 51, David says something to God. He says, search me and try me and know me. He says, God, look at my heart. Because you love truth, I want truth to be in me. And so I'm asking you, God, would you please search me that what I think and the way that I speak would come from a heart that has been thoroughly cleansed by you. He's running to God and saying, here I am, change me. So as you think about praying to the Lord, and as you ask God to forgive you for your sins, you're also saying, God, I know that my sinfulness is more than just doing something wrong. My sinfulness is something that's inside of me, that unless you touch me and change me, I won't have a clean heart. So I'm going to pray for you now that that would be how your heart is warmed to the gospel, that you would believe the truth and that you would pray to Jesus that way. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our covenant children, for this, this morning being here together at the front of the church to see these faces and these eyes. These are your children that belong to you. And Lord, we lift them up to you as a church family. As we get to pray together every Sunday morning, we have the privilege to pray to you, the covenant-keeping God, that these are, are your children, that you love them and that you care for them. And Lord, I pray that as they grow up, as, as young people, that they would know you, that they would know you because they have run to you time and time again and said, cleanse me, O God, from my sins. And not just from the things that other people know, but cleanse me, Lord, from the things that you know that no one else does. Lord, I pray that that would be such a habit of their life that it will be as natural as breathing because of your work of grace in them. Lord, we admit and confess that our hearts are turned away from you and ourselves. But I pray, Lord, that it would be as though they never knew a day of not running to you with their sin to receive the grace that you have for them. Lord, I pray for their, their young hearts and their young minds that you would protect them in this world that would love to have them be suspect of you and question you and doubt your word. I pray that today would be another step along the way of their lives of trusting you and believing that you are a good heavenly father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. This morning for our responsive reading, we're going to read together Psalm 29. It's on page 794 in the hymnal. Page 794. Psalm 29. I'll begin with the light portion. Uh, please respond out loud together with the bold. Ascribe to the Lord, Almighty Ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory to His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, like a The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of the fish. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. As we just recited together in Psalm 29, you read these words, and in his temple all cry glory. In our next hymn, we're going to be singing together number 660, O God beyond all praising. May we lift up our hearts and cry glory to our Heavenly Father, the King. Let's stand together and sing.
be seated. This morning for our pastoral prayer time, we are going to continue to pray uh, as we have throughout this month for the chaplain ministry in the PCA and also for uh, prison ministry chaplains, specifically those who go into jails and share the good news of the gospel with, with inmates. And also wanted to pray for us as a church family as we uh, consider what uh, we've talked about with the children in the children's sermon over the last couple of weeks about repentance before the Lord and having hearts that are turned to God and run to Him. I want to pray for us as God's people that as we are here this morning that the Lord would, would touch our hearts, that He would turn us to Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a joy and a privilege it is to call upon your name, to lift up our hearts to you in praise and adoration, to use the wonderful gift of music that you have given us to sing praises to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our wonderful, majestic, beautiful, loving God who cares for us by sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to die for sinners like us, to be raised victoriously over death and hell and Satan, that we might be made your sons and your daughters. We rejoice in your presence and we bow before you, our Heavenly Father, our King. Lord, I pray that as your people, as we worship today, that you would turn our hearts to you as we, as we continue to sing in this service of worship, as we open your word in a few moments to read from the Holy Scriptures, from the mouth of God, words written for us that we might know who you are, that we might walk before you. I pray, Lord, that we would receive those words as the mouth of the living God to us. Lord, help us to bow before you and to receive what you have for us today in humility. Lord, I do lift up and pray for our chaplain ministry. I pray for those who go into uh, hospitals, and go into rooms and pray with people who have just heard devastating news, to be with families as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death with loved ones, as they go through hospice care, as they wait and watch before the Lord and call upon you for mercy and grace. Lord, I pray that you would give our chaplains a deep sense of your presence with them as they go, and that they would depend not on the wisdom of man, but on your Holy Spirit in them, to give them the words to say, to give them the peace sometimes just to sit and be present and not say anything, and particularly that their prayers would be a comfort and a ministry to those who they are with. Lord, I do pray for our military chaplains also who are in harm's way with our servicemen and women. Lord, I pray that they would have a heart to share the gospel with these, um, these brave people who go and defend the freedoms that we enjoy and serve us, though we would maybe never meet them on this side of glory. I pray that you would turn our hearts to being concerned for them and their well-being. And Lord, I do also pray for those who go into prisons and jails, even here in Fairfield County, those who go and share the good news of the gospel, who are a welcomed face for some who never see visitors, who don't have family or friends who come and say, I was just thinking about you and just wanted to say hello. Lord, I pray that you would use uh, 
the words of life in the gospel, the same words that you use to call us to yourself, that you would use those words. Lord, I pray for courage and for strength. I pray that you would help these men and women who do this on days when they don't feel like getting up or maybe don't feel like going. I pray that you would give them the strength and the faith to go even when they don't feel up to it. Lord, I thank you for the privilege that we have to pray to you. And I do pray for those in our church family who are going through health difficulties and trials that have gone on for some time and as of yet are still unresolved. And Lord, I pray for those in our midst, in our church family, who we love and care for, who are spiritually sick, who it wouldn't be something that a doctor could diagnose, but your word does. Lord, I pray that you would call us to yourself. Help us to see our great need of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how you have come in fullness that we might be called to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, our scripture reading this morning is chapter 9 verses 1 through 15. Amos chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts, that the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn. All of it shall swell like the river, and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky, and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtar, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, The calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord God who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Today we are concluding our series, Prepare to Meet Your God, on the book of Amos. With Amos's fifth vision, the Lord by the altar. The sermon is entitled, The Dawn of a New Day. God called Amos, you remember, and took him from sheep breeding and tending sycamore fig trees. He called him out of the field to preach of God's visitation upon his people Israel. 
But Israel was prosperous. They enjoyed peace. And Amos' message, when he came preaching, this is the word of the Lord, it was a message that was unwelcomed by God's people. It fell upon deaf ears and really cold, obstinate hearts. We must not miss it, though, throughout the book of Amos. It has been repeated, maybe to the point of easily being able to overlook it, that this is the word of the sovereign Lord. Throughout the book, Amos has said, thus says the Lord God, or God has told his people, I will bring judgment. He says in chapter 9, my eyes are upon you for evil and not for good. And then he ends the book the same way that he started in Amos chapter 9, verse 15, the last phrase, how fitting. This all is a message from God. And he says, says the Lord your God. God is the one who has the final word in this prophecy. Israel, most of all, was not prepared to meet God. I think that's why God called them to account. Why the namesake of our series is prepare to meet your God. They were unprepared to see him, to be in his presence Their lives, but most importantly, their hearts were riddled with idolatry. They were in love with themselves. They stood in the mirror and paused and they fell in love with what they saw. And they thought for sure God must love us the way that we are. And when God confronted them through the prophet, they were absolutely unwilling to call sin, sin. They were absolutely unwilling in the face of God with the command of God to repent of their sins. And Amos preached a message. Throughout the entire book, it did not change. God's judgment is upon you for your sins. It is coming. And after nine chapters, after the five visions that we've studied over the last few weeks, it is amazing that there were some people, even in Amos chapter 9, verse 10, who would say, the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. We are exempt. We are not the sinners you must be speaking about. It must be someone else. And I wonder if sometimes when we come on Sunday morning, we think, boy, that was a good message for somebody else. That was a wonderful word from the Lord for my neighbor or for my wife or for my husband. Or I hope my children were listening today. The word of Amos. The word of the Lord through the prophet Amos comes to God's people, the church, today. There is a dawn of a new day coming. As we look at this text, as we see these 15 verses in Amos chapter 9, I want to do so under three headings. The first, the striking vision. The second, the restoration of Israel. And lastly, the redemption of Jesus Christ. So number one, the striking vision. And two subpoints under this an awful image and a precise image. What Amos saw in this fifth vision was an awful image, awe inspiring. It would cause your heart to leap, your stomach to feel like it was in your throat, and your feet and your legs would know exactly what to do. He says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and it was awful. And then, not only did I see him, but he spoke. And, you know, I wonder if some people thought, as they considered the temple in Bethel, 
or the temple in Dan that King Jeroboam had set up for God's people to worship the two golden calves that he erected for the people to worship and say, this is the God of Israel. I wonder if some of them were mistaken as they thought about this vision that Amos said he saw of the Lord standing by the temple, by the altar in the temple. I wonder if they thought, well, that's where God should be. Why wouldn't he be here? He's pleased with us. We are his people. Why wouldn't he be here and, and show us by his token presence that we are the people of God? And yet striking in this awful image is that God was not there to endorse what they were doing. He was coming to bring devastation upon his people. He was coming to remind them of who he is. He was coming to show them what the fear of the Lord actually means. In Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5, when Nehemiah heard that the walls had been broken, he wept before the Lord and he, he prayed. It says in Nehemiah 1.5, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. In some translations, O great and terrible God, you who keep your covenant promises to discipline and to love your people. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, that same word is used. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God for judgment. We know that it is a wonderful thing to have the hand of God upon you for blessing. But just as powerful as he is to bless his people, he is also strong to judge his people who live in unrepentant sin. And that's how Amos saw the Lord standing by the altar of the temple. And it says in Amos chapter 9 that he came to strike a mighty blow to bring a sharp sword and a sieve to his people. A mighty blow, God says, to destroy this false temple. Hit the capitals. Hit the top of the beams that support the walls and crush the people with them. Destroy this false temple. It is not for worship of me. It is for worship of yourselves and for idols that you've made with your own hands. This temple is not a symbol of my presence among my people. It is a shrine to you and to your idols. And I cannot allow it to be here in the land that I promised to give to my people. It says that he is bringing a sharp sword in this vision. It says actually in verse 1 that God will slay the sinners. God will be the one who will swing the sword among his people. And it says that if they tried to run and get away, that he would search them out and he would find them. And he would still pour out his judgment upon them. And it says in verse 4 that he sets his eyes upon them, not for good, but for evil. I will come and punish sinners, God says. And then in in verse 9, he said that he would bring a sieve among his people, that he would sift them. And in verse 9, he reminds them, just in case we haven't forgotten, that this is not the work of the Assyrians or any other foreign country, though they might be the people who are used to punish God's people. He says, I will command, in verse 9, it is my doing. I will sift Israel as grain, and I will shake out the chaff and those who are the sinners, and they shall die, in verse 10. This is a strong message. This is a hard message for God's people to hear, and it's been on repeat 
Kind of like that function you might have with an old radio where you could hit a button and it would just repeat that same track over and over again. It's the message we've been hearing. But wonder of wonders. The word of God went forth and the people didn't repent. It didn't break their hearts. It's as if it bounced off of it. The sin was almost like a hard crust over their hearts. They heard the word of God, but they didn't listen. They heard speaking, but they didn't pay attention. It's an awful image here in Amos 9, but it's also a precise one. He says in verse 10 that all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. But on the other side of that coin, he says, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. My judgment is not a mindless fury. My judgment is coming upon those who refuse to obey the gospel. But I will not totally and utterly destroy the house of Jacob. In verse 9, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. This is a, an exacting precise image. It is an exacting judgment of God. No sinner will go unpunished. Though he try to run away seemingly being in compliance with the Assyrians. Though he tries to hide and feign obedience and is willing to humble himself before these enemies, I will search their camps and I will find them, these sinners of mine, and I will punish them, he says. But also, none who are of the remnant of my people who do still trust in me, none of them will be lost. Not one grain will fall to the ground that I don't notice it. John chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, My father is the greatest and he has given people to me and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. That's what God is saying here. My people will go away. They will be carried into a foreign land and another nation will force them to do it. They will raise these cities to the ground and it will be horrible and awful. Yet none of my people who trust in me by faith will be lost, even if they live in another land. I think this image of God is gracious. I think it's gracious in two ways. I think number one, it's gracious because it's vision correcting. I don't know if you ever have any eye problems or need to wear glasses. There are some of you here who do, and maybe even some of you who, who have contacts. But what if you went to the eye doctor and the doctor said, well, you have an astigmatism, you have these other problems in one eye, and then you have this other issue, totally different in the other eye. And we're just going to leave it right the way it is. We'll collect your bill on the way out. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. That is not a doctor's office you're going back to. The truth of God's word comes to his people to correct vision problems and lies. Lies that they believed in their hearts. Lies that shaped the way they lived and thought about God and about one another. They believed lies that they could live however they wanted to and take God's word and read it and say, that's pretty nice. And then set it aside and walk away. God says, I'm coming in a gracious way to correct your hearts, to show the true remnant of Israel that I am the living God and there is no other. I do punish sins just as I said I would in my covenant promises. And I do bless my people who walk before me in humility, just as I said I would. But I said it's gracious in two ways. Number two, I think it's also comforting to the remnant. 
As we think about this time when God's people would be carried away from Israel, they would be carried away to live in exile. There were people among the camp who were carried away who were believing. They saw their neighbors die or their neighbors' children die. They saw the dead bodies in the streets. They had to step over them as the Assyrians goaded them in the back. And they wept. Oh God, we are a sinful people. We are stiff-necked and hard-hearted. I think God was speaking these gracious words that He might comfort those who mourned in Israel for the days of glory when they remembered God delivering His people out of the land of Egypt. Look how we have fallen as a people. We promised obedience and have run after every idol that has come before our eyes. This vision that God gave to Amos was striking. Number two, we see in this text something of hope that we had not seen through the first eight chapters, at least not in a full picture. It's as if we're reading a different book. There's been so much gloom and doom and judgment, and here Amos has a a positive word to say about the restoration of Israel. Here he says, That God will rebuild a house. He says I will raise up the tabernacle of David. Which has fallen down in verse 11. And it's as if you need to put your finger in Amos. And run all the way back into 2 Samuel. And all the way back into Genesis. Wait a minute I remember. I remember there were covenant promises that God made to his people. You have to run back and find them. Wait a minute he promised to do this. He promised never to forsake those who walk with him by faith. He said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that I will make of your house a royal dynasty. Being faithful to the promises that I made to Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 17 verse 6, where I told him that nations and kings will come from your family. Wait a minute. I remember there were promises that God made to his people. I remember he told David in 2 Samuel that I will make you a house, an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. What God is saying here in Amos chapter 9 is I have to go back and set right what King Rehoboam did when he despised the people of God in 1 Kings 11 through 13. See, King Rehoboam decided, I'll show them who's boss. I'll show them who has authority. The people came and asked for a little less work. And they asked maybe for a little less taxes, but I'll show them who's boss. I'm the one who's king here, and my little finger will be broader than the waist of my father. And you will know work, and you will know fear, because I am the king. And the people's hearts were drawn away from him. God is here promising that my way of blessing and my covenant faithfulness rests where I put it. The people don't get to choose. I choose. But it was in that time in 1 Kings 11 through 13 that the people of God walked away from this house of David. And they said in chapter 12, Who are you, O David? And what interest do you have in our families? And so the people said to one another, Go back to your tents. Live how you want to live. We're the people of God. No one can say they have this kind of authority over us. 
This was just a few generations away from them crying out to God. We want a king. We want a king. And then when the king spoke, they turned their hearts away from him. It's what happens with sinners like us. In rebuilding this house, God said that he would do something maybe a little bit surprising. This house would be rebuilt, but it would also be expanded. He said that he would bring in the Gentiles. That all the Gentiles who are called by my name. It doesn't say who I will call. Or I might call. Or maybe in the future when I get around to it, I will call them. He says they are called by my name. There are people who are part of the church, the kingdom of God, who are not part of Israel. And they will be brought in and they will enjoy the beauty and the the protection of the house of the king of David. The Gentiles will be brought in. Brothers and sisters, that's you and me. That's Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. A multitude which no man can number. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is what God showed Amos. He will restore to order the kingdom. So I ask you, as you think about this text, who's the builder? Who is building this house of David? David is gone. Solomon is gone. Rehoboam is gone. Who is the king? Who is the builder? Who is the one on the throne? In verse 12, it says, says the Lord who does this thing. That all of this is moving. Everyone who's making decisions, everyone who dispatches armies, everyone who calls God's people to worship is doing so at his bidding. The work in the temple, the work in the state house, the work in your house is being done at the plan of the almighty sovereign Lord. Everything is happening according to his will. If you have your Bible with you, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 as we think about God building a house. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to read some words about Abraham, whom God promised to him that he would build him a house, give him an inheritance. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, By faith he dwelled in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're reading about in Amos chapter 9. God's fulfilling his covenant promises that he made to Abraham and to David that he would build a house and a land and inheritance for his people. That they would live and walk by faith before him wherever he sent them to go. The restoration of Israel here is the culmination of the kingdom of God pulling in the true Israel. Those who love God and the Gentiles. People from every tribe and tongue and nation making the people of God. And God is the one who is the builder. And then he speaks about this restoration not just touching the nation of Israel or other nations. But also, he says, there will be a super abundant harvest. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord in verse 13, that the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. And the mountains will drip and the hills will flow with wine. I don't know if you've ever worked out in a field, 
But can you imagine just for a moment, I've done a little bit of, of work in the garden or with hay, and I imagine there would be a little bit of angst in the hearts of farmers if the man who has some helpers coming to pick up the bales of hay was overrun by the one bringing the fertilizer truck. Whoa. Either y'all are late or we're early. Something's not right. And God is saying that the abundance will be such in that day that there won't be time to gather it all or before it's time to start planting again. And the ones who are treading the grapes to harvest it, to put away the wine, will be overtaken by those who are coming to plant seeds. That is a wonderful, beautiful picture of the abundance of glory in heaven. God's people living under His protection and His provision. That is what He is talking about here. This unbelievable harvest will also be characterized by an ingathering of God's people. He says, though I am sending them out of the land now, one day I will bring them back. I will bring back the captives of Israel. They will come back and I will plant them in the land and never again will they be plucked up. I wonder if you see this throughout the book of Amos and really throughout the Old Testament, that God's promise of blessing and restoration of Israel does in fact put a light on them as a nation, but not for their greatness but for God's. He says, I chose you not because you were great, but because you were small. I chose you not because you have resources, but because I do. Because I chose you, I will get glory for myself. Whether it's your smallness, your inability to protect yourself, your inability to provide for yourself, your little number, or even your sinfulness, I will get glory from all of it. And I think looking at this text and reading these words, it points us forward, absolutely springs us forward to the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think so, because reading this text, there's no other way to consider restoring the ruin of the house of David, whose line was all but broken, apart from a work of God's supernatural grace. You cannot rebuild a house. This was not just a building. This was a family royal dynasty, an eternal throne. You don't do that apart from the work of God's grace. And number two, he says, planting to never pluck up again. I think farmers and gardeners have to be some of the most positive thinking people in the world. I will do all this work, and in six months, I have to start all over again. And God says, when I plant my people back here again, they will never be plucked up again. They will produce fruit. They will enjoy fullness. They will know my presence. They will enjoy one another. And there will be no thorns and thistles. And it will be a place of beauty and abundance. So as we consider that this is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in this last section about Israel being restored, about you and I being brought into the kingdom, about someone sitting upon David's throne forever, we have to think about the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ in two ways. Number one, He has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has come, the Redeemer of His people. Why did He come? Number one, He came to glorify the Father, to bring glory to Himself, and to redeem His people. According to the perfect plan of God, Jesus coming into the world is the pinnacle signpost in the history of redemption, that God is faithful to His covenant promises. 
that neither the passage of time nor the flaming arrows of hell or Satan himself and bless God, not the sins of his people can stay his hand. Do you believe that? That the Lord Jesus coming melts a heart of stone and draws us to himself. The redemption of Christ is the reason we raise our hands and sing. The redemption of Christ is the reason we pray. It is the reason we humble ourselves before God's word and say, it is right and true. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. This is a timeless word. I wonder if you've thought about Amos, and maybe some of you feel like you have a job like this. From a human standpoint, Amos absolutely failed. He was called. He should have stayed in the field. I wonder if some people were whispering. You should have stayed out there, Amos. Go back to the sheep. Go back to the fig trees. That's what you know. Because by all accounts, you came and preached for nine chapters and God's judgment still came. You failed. And I wonder if some of us equip or account that success or failure in walking with God is seeing results that we can look at with our eyes. Are you willing to be obedient even if you don't get to see success? Are you willing to preach a message, preach the simple gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to share that with people and say, this is the the way, the truth, and the life only in Jesus Christ? Am I willing to tell people that? Or do I think I need to dress up the message and figure up a different Jesus so that he'll be more palpable to people? So that they could swallow it a little bit easier. That they're not really sinners. They just do bad things from time to time. It is a timeless, unchanging message. It is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come. He is coming. And why is he coming? Why is Jesus coming again? He's coming again to glorify his father. And he is coming again to gather his church, the people of God, who 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says, who love his appearing. Did you wake up this morning and think, today is the Lord's day. Today may be the day that I see the king. Just as Amos said, I saw the Lord standing by the altar in the temple. Today may be the day that I see the king. And I think this gives us hope in several ways, but I just want to give you two. That just as some who left Israel in the day that God poured out judgment upon them learned that they would live as exiles in another land, that they would walk away from Israel, the place they had known and loved, and some of them, they grew up there and knew no other home, and they would go live and die in a foreign land. God was teaching his people, you must walk before me by faith, You must live now where you are as exiles. This is not home. And you need to get comfortable with this idea that wherever I am is where your home is. It is not an address. Home is my presence to my people. It is waiting in the full assurance of hope, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And it is learning to live in the abundance of what God provides for his people. It wasn't that they were going and now God would no longer be with them. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says these words, 
These beautiful words about your riches and mine in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he has made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. I read that to you, dear brothers and sisters, to remind you of the riches that you have in Christ. Yes, you are in exile, but you have been given everything that you need to live by faith right now. All the grace that we need today to trust the Lord, he promises to give us. There is no promise that he has not made that you need. There may be promises you want that he hasn't given, but no promise that you need has he withheld from you. And not one moment of your day is without his presence and there may be times when you feel like, God, I, I feel like you are so far away in what I'm experiencing. My heart, it seems as though it is being torn apart. But God, you are with me. And he says, whatever you need, I will provide. Either I have provided it in my son, Jesus Christ. I will provide it to you through my grace and in my word. And I will draw you to myself. I give you the promise, my people of God. God says to you, Psalm 84, 11, No good thing will he withhold from those who love him, who were called according to his purpose. And I pray as you go throughout this day, as you wake up tomorrow morning on Monday and get back in your routine, that these words from Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, would be what call you to live by faith. These words are about the Lord Jesus himself. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned from him. May the Lord be the one who gives you the grace to have a steadfast heart, to be his people of faith and not fear, of hope and not despair, and to receive all the plans that he has for you to bring about a day of life in his presence. May you know that by faith, Though what you see in front of you says something different, may you know it to be true, because his word has said it. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this study in the book of Amos. Lord, I thank you for the way that it has challenged me and my heart and my own faith in walking before you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, that as they have been challenged, that they would not set your word down lightly, Without praying before you, God of heaven, draw my heart to you. It is prone to wander, and I know it. Prone to walk away from you, who has called me to yourself and blessed me with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And you chose to do it before the foundation of the world, yet I am still prone to leave you. Lord, I pray that that would be the cry of our heart, that you would draw us to yourself, because we can't. The Bible says that we do not seek you. Lord, I pray that we would admit reality and run into your presence. 
I thank you for this, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond together to God's word by singing hymn number 386. God be with you till we meet again.
Thank you, Callie. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray that those words would be true for your people today. That they would know your perfect peace. That it flows like a river glorious. That hearts that are stayed upon you know that peace. Lord, I pray that for your people. I pray that for myself, for my family, for my dear brothers and sisters and their families, that they would know the peace of the Lord, that Jesus has come and done everything that is needed for them to be acceptable in your sight. And Lord, I pray that because of that knowledge and that confidence, that as we have given freely today our tithes and our offerings to you, that we would do so not hoping that you accept us in heaven, but because we are confident that you do because of Jesus. Lord, I do offer up prayers to you that this offering would be for your glory alone and that it would be used for the spread of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that people who do not know this beautiful, wonderful peace of Jesus would hear of it and cry out to you in saving faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. benediction of our Lord. And now may the Lord, who is the strength of his people, be your shepherd and carry you forever. Amen. Amen.